0: Hello, my name is Michael Albert, and this is the 172nd episode of the podcast that's titled Revolution Z. This is the ninth episode in the sequence that's titled Ruminations. This is a sequence where what I do for the duration of the episode is talk about whatever comes into mind. It's a spontaneous kind of approach, uh, not scripted, not uh, not prepared in advance. A few topics I think of, and then the rest flow as we proceed. In any case, let's begin with something that uh, keeps popping up in media and in left commentary of late, due to the war, the concept of my enemy's enemy being my friend. This notion is really pretty peculiar when you think about it. My enemy's enemy is my friend. Why can't my enemy's enemy be another enemy? Why can't my enemy's enemy be something neutral? Well, the idea is that my enemy's enemy does damage to my enemy. And therefore, my enemy's enemy is on my side in reducing the power and scope and capacity of my enemy. Suppose there's some element of uh, logic to that. There are times when it makes sense, but there are also times when it really doesn't make sense, when my enemy's enemy is just another enemy. And in the particular case that we're enduring at present, some people sort of think to themselves, well, American imperialism, American foreign policy, American intervention around the world, that's the biggest problem. And since that's the biggest problem, anything that interferes with that, anything that That finds to be an obstacle anything that reduces the power of that or even threatens to reduce the power of that must be my friend and uh, there you have it Uh, so Russia is my friend as an anti-war anti-imperialist activist because it is on the opposite side from the United States and say NATO Uh, okay that's ludicrous I think it ought to be clear that it's not logically sound, it isn't ethically sound, it isn't strategically sound. It lacks any, any substantial support, and yes, there are people who feel that way. Maybe as we go along, we'll, we'll come to some reasons why people take what are strange positions. Another one that pops up, this one I first encountered a long time ago, was the idea of the primary contradiction. There must be, this line of thinking goes, a primary contradiction or conflict in any circumstance. And the way you should understand the totality of that circumstance is by understanding each element of it in light of the primary contradiction. I think this is where my enemy's enemy comes from in some sense, American imperialism, primary contradiction. Let's understand everything in light of that. Russian invasion of Ukraine, understood in light of American imperialism, starts to cause people to think, well, the only possible cause for it could be American imperialism, and the relevant effect of it is blocking American imperialism. We we sort of look at the world through a set of lenses or a disposition which elevates one thing above all other things and sees everything else in light of that one thing. Some of you out there probably think this is a reasonable way to approach trying to understand reality. Well, it isn't. There are situations in which there is no primary contradiction There are lots of contradictions, or no contradictions. There is a situation in which many varied attributes and features and dynamics are at work. Some affect others, and vice versa. None predominates. Even if one did predominate, it wouldn't mean that the best way to understand everything else was in terms of that one. Okay, that's an abstract formulation, but it's obviously correct. It's obviously true. And so trying to bend the world as if it has to fit the preordained assumption that there will be a primary contradiction and that is the best way to understand everything is weird. It is strange. It is sectarian in the sense of looking at the world and having a preconceived notion, govern what you can see and what you are willing to think about rather than having the world determine what is worth thinking about. Let's move on to another kind of situation. Selfies. Since their origination, I have found something sort of disturbing about selfies. Uh, There's something strange about it. There's something untoward about it. And the more I think about it, the more I realize that what really irks me isn't The idea of somebody taking a picture of themselves and that being sort of self-interested and egocentric or narcissistic, it doesn't have to be. It can be perfectly reasonable. It's something different. It's a tendency in society toward individualism, toward understanding relationships and dynamics in terms of self, in terms of selfie. What does it do to me? What, does, what can I do sort of independent of everybody else? Individualism in the worst sense. And this has political implications. So consider the, uh, we can call it the great refusal, or the, you know, the widespread quitting of jobs. It's a remarkable phenomenon. Or at least I think it's a remarkable phenomenon. It's not organized. It isn't as if each person who decides not to go back to work or who decides to quit and get something else is doing that as a result of some sort of interactive dynamic with others. It's rather an individual decision made over and over and over again, millions of times. It's quite remarkable. It has a progressive aspect to it. But now consider this. Consider if all those individual choices, instead of being made in an isolated fashion, like an atom bouncing around and moving this way instead of that way, but with no connection to anything else, imagine that all those people who were quitting jobs said to themselves, wait a minute, what if I, what if I interact with others who feel like I do? What if we work together? What if we strike? And in fact, we are seeing some of that. And so that's the good side. The good side is we're seeing a, an awakening of labor activism and of labor organizing and of labor interactions, and thus of people working together collectively, talking through their mutual feelings and finding that collectively they can accomplish more than individually. And that, of course, is the critical step or a critical step on the road to successful political activity. So that, that is our problem in some sense. Nowadays, a very big part of the problem of reaching a better situation, and much less reaching a better social organization, transforming society, is getting people to respect one another and listen to one another enough to work together. And it isn't just respect and listening, it's the belief that working together can be something more than a headache. It can be a positive step that accomplishes things. In that light, consider the difference between two types of political activity. Type one, we can call mobilizing. It's getting people out for demonstrations. It's getting people out for events. It's turning out a community of people, a audience of people, a sector of people to do something. And then there's organizing. And I think that's quite different. Organizing is actually not turning out the people with whom you have much in common. It isn't turning out, getting a set of people with whom you have connection to do something. It's not that that's bad. Of course, that's perfectly fine and a a good thing to do at times in order to manifest the the weight of, of collectivity. However, organizing, it seems to me, is reaching out not to the people who already agree with you, but to the people who don't agree with you. Organizing is reaching people who are not on your side, who are even overtly against you in some instances, and creating a connection, and creating a linkage and a shared set of views. And so later on, when you're mobilizing, those people are mobilized as well. It's increasing the audience. It's increasing the outreach. Whereas mobilizing is sort of speaking to those of like mind, Organizing is speaking to those of different mind, or mobilizing can be sort of galvanizing those of like mind, providing an example for those of like mind, providing a vehicle for those of like mind. Organizing is doing those same things, but for people with whom you, at the start, don't have a connection. It's harder, it's more difficult, it's more complex, but it's also absolutely essential Suppose we consider the communications version of the same thing. That's the realm where I operate and have for a long time. This is communications, a podcast, writing an article or a book. That's communications. So what's the the sort of analog, if we think about it in this way, of mobilizing when you're writing, say, or when you're speaking publicly, or when you're, whatever it is you're doing, you're communicating? What's the analog of mobilize? It seems to me that it is, for the most part, saying or writing what people want to hear. Mobilizing is, for example, from my own experience, I get up uh, before a big event, uh, an organized event, a bit of activism, and give it speech, and the idea is to connect, to to arouse passion. Let's say to get people ready to act. Okay, so you're saying things that people relate to, that they identify with. I think people do that a lot of the time, not just talking, not just at at a situation that calls for it. But for example, when we sit down to write something, be it an article or a book, when we answer questions in an interview, whatever it is, often we communicate things that people already know instead of communicating things that are different from what our audience knows. It's back to that concept of mobilizing versus organizing in, in activity, and now it's in communications. And the difference is, when we're mobilizing, we're giving an audience something basically that it is receptive to already. We're not trying to move forward. We're not trying to challenge a view. We're not trying to present a new, unfamiliar view. We're trying to say things that are going to go over well. This is the difference between, I guess, something that you could call something like an analog of mobilizing and an analog of organizing in the realm of communications. And I think it's pretty profoundly important, because I think an awful lot of what we, meaning people who want a better world, people who want a better society— People who are interested in escaping current social relations and developing new and vastly better and more worthy ones, often what we do is say or write things which do not challenge our audience. It's safer. We're not going to get booed, we're not going to get ignored, we're not going to get misunderstood as much if what we're telling them already is in their minds in some sense, and we give it a little spin or we give it a little extra passion or whatever it might be, then that's going to go over okay. We're not going to make a mistake either. If we're doing something that is very familiar, if we're talking about how you know poverty hurts, and capitalism uh, generates poverty, and sexism hurts, and patriarchy generates the relations between men and women that subordinate the latter, and so on and so forth. We're not going to make a mistake. It's well-trod ground. We're not going out on a limb. We're not saying something we'll get criticized for. and so that kind of activity comes pretty easily to people who talk or who write. And the other kind of activity, saying something that might actually push one's audience, might actually yield a change or yield resistance, doesn't come as easily. And we are much less uh, inclined to do it. So if we're organizing and we're trying to increase our constituency, we also want to retain that increased constituency, enlarged constituency. We want to move people not only sort of in their momentary belief system, in their momentary commitments, but we want to retain that change. And that requires building organization. And why is it particularly hard and difficult to build organization? Well, you know, it's got its own intrinsic reasons. And then I think maybe there's another reason that we don't pay enough attention to. And that other reason would be a kind of a leadership catch-22. The people who are prepared to exert mightily and lead, bring with them a certain kind of baggage by and large. And the people who we want to be exerting and leading but who aren't, who aren't as inclined to, to play a significant and substantial role, bring with them a kind of baggage. The former bring a kind of assumption of dominance, assumption of, I can have my way, I can uh, do what I, what I want and, and, and succeed, a confidence. And the second group bring with them a kind of lack of confidence. And I don't think our approach to moving people into the constituency that we want to become active and that we want to be uh, trying to change the world, and retaining people in that constituency, and especially elevating people in their level of involvement and in their level of, of decision-making, of taking responsibility, I don't think it takes into account often enough that the impediment to doing it at all is a lack of confidence. And the impediment to doing it in a way which is conducive to others becoming involved also is a degree of self superiority of arrogance. And that's a kind of catch-22. We need the level of participation, the level of creative involvement, the level of activity. We don't need and don't want the assumption of self-superiority, if you will, the arrogance that sometimes accompanies confidence. And we sort of have to fight that battle on two fronts. This is not the case when what you're doing is creating an organization that's going to be under one person's or a small number of people's thumb, then it's perfectly uh, acceptable, although not constructive, for those people to think that they're the best and for other people to be happy to follow orders. But if you want something that's participatory, if you want an organization that is capable of engaging huge numbers of people, not only in acting, But in taking initiative, then you need something else. Consider now, instead of the left, going off from what we've been talking about, the question of the kinds of bad leadership that we see in the world, let's say. Let's take Jeff Bezos and Stalin, dictator. Now, the normal order of thinking is that the dictator is the worst or Putin, I guess. The dictator is the worst um, uh, species of human, short of Hannibal Lecter, and and in scale, much worse than Hannibal Lecter, in other words, some kind of serial killer, is a dictator. But is it really the case? I'm not so sure. Amazon recently, that's Bezos' terrain, as compared to uh, a country, the terrain of of a dictator, Amazon had an app that they're developing sort of, I guess, hacked or revealed in some sense. The app is a kind of a, of a social uh, communications app for its employees. And remember, there's about a million employees of Amazon, roughly speaking. So we're talking a large number of people. And what they're doing is they're creating an app to uh, serve as a kind of a, of a communications mechanism among the entire workforce. Well, that's sort of interesting. Uh, That could have, I suppose, a positive or a negative implication. The negative implication could be that you use it for surveillance, you use it to issue orders, you use it to create a false sense of involvement, and so on and so forth, as you can all figure out. The positive would be that the workers uh, use it to communicate and to sometimes mobilize, but even more important, organize and then mobilize to have an impact on Amazon, as is happening right now in the instances of Amazon workers uh, beginning to form unions. Well, this, this little device has been, I don't know what to call it, hacked something. And a list of words, and sometimes phrases, but mostly words, has been uncovered that the app rules out. The app actually intrinsically censors these words. If you communicate using these particular words, your communication is not seen. You can't use these words on the app. So they're literally trying to create a, a mechanism for communication and within that mechanism have a set of constraints on what it's possible to communicate. And here is a list of words and phrases that you cannot use on this app. I hate. Union. Fire. Terminated. Compensation. Pay raise. Bullying. Harassment. I don't care. Rude. This is concerning. Stupid. This is dumb. Prison. Threat. Petition. Grievance. Injustice. Diversity. Ethics. Fairness. Accessibility. Vaccine. Senior ops. Living wage. Representation. Unfair. Favoritism. Rate. TOT. And I don't know what that stands for. Probably a sign of my ignorance. Unite. Unity. Plantation. Slave. Slave labor. Master. Concerned. Freedom. Restrooms. Robots. Trash. Committee. Coalition. I mean, really, just just think about that. Stalin, not Hitler, nobody in history, right, except somebody like Bezos, the owner of a corporation, or the set of owners of a corporation, has ever reached this deeply into controlling the lives of those below. Bezos is just beyond, I mean, it's, it's, it's incredible. And this same guy, Jeff Bezos, and he's just an exemplar of a particular sort, and it's not a genetic sort, it's a sort that is produced by the institutions that the person travels through on their way to this extreme level of domination. How do you explain him? This this guy, I have no doubt, could watch a movie, and if it was about, say, I don't know, Uh, well, if it was a historical movie about the Soviet Union and it showed alienation in Soviet workplaces and uh, the kinds of things that one might talk about using words like bullying and harassment and fire and terminated and unfair and so on and so forth, so forth, and he would empathize with the Soviet workers. In the same person's mind, that can go on. Another instance of that kind of thing, which is going on right now, is you can turn on TV and you can pick up mainstream media and you can read what seem to be, and I believe are, heartfelt words of sympathy, heartfelt um, feelings or expressions of uh, sympathy and solidarity for people in Ukraine getting killed or otherwise brutalized by the Russian invasion. And you can hear this from people who celebrate and actually implement the policies and create the policies of the United States doing the exact same thing. The exact same thing. Invading a country, obliterating its infrastructure, killing its its citizens, except on a scale that leaves Ukraine in the dust. Uh, so in, in Indochina and, and since as well. And so you have the same person. It's as if somebody said, lying is despicable, and two seconds later told a lie. And a, a lie that they could not possibly not know was a lie. Or they say, Rape is despicable, and two seconds later they rape. Or they say, you know, invading a country, a sovereign country, is despicable. And then they plan and implement invading a country. Or they celebrate it in the media. How is this possible? How can the same human being embody the contradiction, the, the contradictory viewpoints that each of which denies the other? I mean, it's just incredible to me. When I was a kid, a long time ago, I read one of Vonnegut's books. Um, It was called Mother Night. I recommend it. Actually, I recommend pretty much everything that Vonnegut ever wrote. But in this particular book, there's a passage after a while. The book is about, well, the passage actually, I think, stands on its own. So I won't even say what the book is about. So here's the passage. I have never seen a more sublime demonstration of the totalitarian mind a mind which might be linked unto a system of gears, where teeth have been filed off at random. Such snaggletooth thought machine, driven by a standard or even by a substandard libido, whirls with the jerky, noisy, gaudy pointlessness of a cuckoo clock in hell. The boss, G-Man, concluded wrongly that there were no teeth on the gears in the mind of Jones. You're completely crazy, he said. Jones wasn't completely crazy. The dismaying thing about the classic totalitarian mind is that any given gear thought mutilated will have at its circumference unbroken sequences of teeth that are immaculately maintained that are exquisitely machined. Hence, the cuckoo clock in hell, keeping perfect time for 8 minutes and 23 seconds, jumping ahead 14 minutes, keeping perfect time for 6 seconds, jumping ahead 2 seconds, keeping perfect time for two hours and one second, then jumping ahead a year. The missing teeth, of course, are simple, obvious truths, truths available and comprehensible even to 10-year-olds in most cases. The willful filing off a gear teeth, the willful doing without certain obvious pieces of information. That was how a household as contradictory as one composed of Jones, Father Keeley, Weiss-Brundesfuhrer, Kraptower, and the Black Fuhrer could exist in relative harmony. That was how my father-in-law could contain in one mind an indifference toward slave women and love for a blue vase. That was how Rudolf Hess, commandant of Auschwitz, could alternate over the loudspeakers of Auschwitz, great music, and calls for corpse carriers. That was how Nazi Germany sensed no important difference between civilization and hydrophobia. That is the closest I can come to explaining the legions, the nations of lunatics, I've seen in my time. And is that not how media pundits galore, officials of all kinds, here in the U.S., can eloquently bemoan the carnage in Ukraine while harboring only the fondest feelings for America the obscene? It seems to me it is. That said, this is Michael Albert signing off until next time for Revolution Z.